Well, as we walked through Holy Week this year on Thursday, we celebrated our humble servant Lord and considered together what it might mean to live according to his new command, to love others in the manner in which he loved us. And Friday, we carefully attended to Jesus' death with the thought that we are loved in an I've got this and I got you sort of way. We looked at Isaiah and his insistence that we behold this servant who was familiar with our pain, who had a full identity with the grim realities of our lives, sickness, weakness, pain, suffering, injustices. And then last night we sat together quietly in sort of the darkness of the tomb, reminding us that our spiritual transformation can be gruesome as it cleanses the death and destruction of our old ways of acting, thinking and feeling, these habits that are deeply woven into the fabric of our old self. But obviously we don't stop there. We come together this morning reminding ourselves that Christ came not just to die but to rise again so that in him we might partake of his resurrection. And this is the formational discipleship thought that I want to place before you this morning. We tend to be very clear about the nature and purposes and affect of Jesus' death. And the resurrection is, of course, a great celebration. But we're not always as clear about what does that mean for me, right? Cross, death, we're very clear about that, what, mean, what that means for us. Not so clear about what does resurrection mean to me? We, we may understand kind of what it means in the big picture, but I want to help us see this morning how formation, our discipleship, is at least in great part a partaking in his resurrection. I was really helped this week by a number of articles in the Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care at Biola, and I did something that I often do in Holy Week, and that is kind of refresh myself in Eugene Peterson's living the resurrection. So they were great for me this week, and I hope my reflections on them can help you. So maybe the big question is, what does it mean to live appropriately and responsively in a world when Christ is risen? And to think, what might the world be like had he not risen? I mean, no other religious leader has risen from the dead. So what does it mean to live appropriately? Just think about that for a moment. And to live responsively in a world in which Christ is risen. And I think the first thing it tells us in regards to our own discipleship to Jesus is that it reminds us that all around us every day, in spite of what our news feeds say, there is a life happening around us. And that as the scriptures say, it's in that life, in him, in the resurrected Christ that we live and move and have our being. And so the Christian invitation to discipleship means something like this, that our new life is now interwoven with his, and his is interwoven with ours. Now we could cite lots of cases where Paul, the Apostle Paul, thought about this, but just one maybe we'll do. When to the Colossians he said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But when we were dead, Jesus delivered us from that reality, which Paul calls the domain of darkness. And he transferred us 
into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is to say, now we live in a reality in the ongoing ruling and reigning of God. Dallas Willard in his book, The Allure of Gentleness, says that most people believe that the only show going, the only real game in town, the only real reality is physical or natural reality. That as far as your practical life is concerned, the one you now know, with its calendar and its budget and your rhythms and routines, that that life, your practical life, well, that's a material thing. That the only thing we can really count on is physical and natural reality. But Easter reminds us that both the material world and the invisible world exist and that they both affect us right now. Contrary, a central Buddhist belief is that the world of suffering and pain is what's known as maya, illusion. But that's not the Christian belief. There's nothing illusory about the material world. We really suffer. We really hunger and hurt. We also really enjoy, at least I do, chocolate shakes and cool spring air. That's all reality. But Easter invites us, as the core of our discipleship, to place our confidence in the invisible kingdom, that it too is really real, and that it overlaps and interlocks with our sphere that we typically think of as the natural or material sphere. Easter tells us that like Jesus, we can live fully present in both the material and the invisible world, and in this invisible reality, that God created them both. Let's just think about how important that is. That God created them both, and he dwells with us in both. Thus, as we place this impossibly great thoughts before us this morning of resurrection, I think the Easter discipleship challenge is this. That through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we're invited to train ourselves to live in the material world by depending on the spiritual world. So we are here, and as I often say, Christians are not dualists. We do not deny our reality, as fun or painful as it might be. That is really real. It's just not the last word. The last word is this immaterial, invisible world through which we make sense of and have capacity to live our everyday, ordinary life. So that the resurrection gives us both the context and the capacity to do followership of Jesus. I mean, imagine what the context of following Jesus would be today had he not risen from the dead. Actually, it's pretty clear there wouldn't be a Jesus movement. There wouldn't be a church as we know it. Every historian, every theological historian, every theologian in general who has looked and tried to answer the question, why do we have a church? Why has there been this Jesus movement for 2,000 years and every one of them say the resurrection? Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another in a long line of failed, quote, messiahs. Of people who thought sincerely and the people around them hoped temporarily that they will deliver us from these oppressive Romans. But the fact that he rose from the dead gives us the context for followership and the capacity to do so. 
So the spiritual transformation through Easter resurrection means something like putting on this new reality, living with, interacting with, deriving our life from, and living it in this unseen reality, this new thing that's real because of the resurrection of Jesus. So if you look at your gospel reading, we see these two women, these Marys, who are exuberantly energized with fear and wonder, astonishment, amazement. And it's the, it's the inbreaking of this previously unthinkable thought that there is a world invisible to us that is actually, in a sense, more concrete than a soldier's spear or a crown of thorns or the fists of soldiers. There's something more real here, but it's invisible. I can see the hand who slugged him. Where's the hand who rolled away the stone? Who did that? Well, that's an invisible reality. And it stuns these ladies. And it pulls them out of themselves into the very action of God. You might think of this as the first step of human discipleship to Jesus is in these ladies as their hearts are pulled out of their astonishment and wonder and into the very action of God. And it begins to be something that they experience and then shortly they experience it for the sake of others. And I think what we see happening here is that it is downright scary when we discover that reality is more than we think it is. You might actually just challenge yourself this morning by saying, maybe I'm actually more attached to the material world because I have in me at least a vague hope that I can control it. But if I give myself to the invisible world, that feels like abandonment. That feels like letting go of outcomes. That feels like not being in control. And that's precisely what these ladies are experiencing. They're experiencing maybe that biblical phrase, the fear of the Lord. That, that phrase just means something like coming to the knowledge that we're not the center of the universe. And that we're not the center of existence. I mean, come on, let's just give these ladies a human break. They're brokenhearted. They're confused. They're, they're not going to see Jesus, as the text says, actually. They're going to keep vigil at the tomb. They're going to just try to figure out what the heck is happening here and maybe just sit at the tomb and think for a while. And so this new reality bursts in on them and they realize what I'm feeling is not the center of the universe. What's going on in me is not actually even the center of my existence. I'm not in control. We're in deep mystery here. We're in profound wonder. And this is one place, uh, one passage I dearly love in Eugene's book where he says, without wonder, this is so important, I hope you can get this, without wonder, the motivational energies for our spiritual transformation get dominated by anxiety and guilt. Can you feel that? Without wonder, all we're left with is that thing that feels most real in us and then it devolves into anxiety and guilt. And there's a lot of reasons that's unhelpful, but not least that anxiety and guilt restrict. And they close us in on ourselves, our own reality. 
They isolate us, Eugene says, with feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness. They reduce us to ourselves at our worst. Spiritual formation, then, he says, is then distorted into moral workaholism or pious athleticism. That's classic Peterson. That without seeing this invisible reality, without knowing that we are being pulled into something by the grace and power of God, all we're left with is our own moral workaholism or a kind of pious athleticism. And then I can't be the only one in the room who notices the centrality of this women in the most pivotal part of the Christian story. So it's worth commenting just to say with all they're going through, all that's happening in their hearts and minds, the grief, the fear, then the wonder and the amazement, I just want you to notice the great reversal here. And I don't mean this in a 1960s battle of the sexes, and I don't even mean this in more modern feminism. It's not, the, it's not what I have in mind here. But clearly as this story is told, it is meant to put before us a great reversal. That men with great power had tried to kill Jesus many times. Starting with Herod trying to kill the babies, to the times that people wanted to kill Jesus during his life, to him finally being arrested and being killed. This is the work of men. And I don't think that's a bashing of men. I think what it's meant to show us is the frequent overestimation we have of the material world. I am king. I have jewelry or clothes or whatever that shows that. You know, think of like a police officer or a fireman who what they wear authorizes them to certain sorts of stuff. So I am authorized to put you to death. And then that feels like, well, you know, what could be more final than death? Only to find out that that human power, which existed virtually only in men at this point, actually isn't the main power. This invisible world is. And so while women with no power see and are animated by the awe and wonder and joy of the invisible world, they then become the first apostles and the first evangelists. Now, but here is, I think, the big point. The big point here is not gender. The big point here is this. Formation, life in Jesus, is available to everyone. There was no one who had been more unlikely to have been the first than a broken-hearted woman. A broken-hearted woman would have just been known as basically crazy. And this tells us something very important. It doesn't matter your starting point. You might be broken-hearted. You might battle with alcohol and drugs. You might be full of fear or guilt or hatred of somebody all wrapped up in this deep confusion. And what resurrection says, as Beth said, here's my hands, take them. Whatever's real for you, take them. I mean, women are no longer the lowest on the rung anymore, but someone is. And millions of human beings, both male and female, feel to be the lowest rung. A little boy, speaking of gender, watching his village bombed is not thinking in gender categories. They're thinking, I am the most vulnerable on the earth. I have no control over what falls out of the sky. 
are there some hands that I could take? Is there a reality that includes but transcends iron and electronics falling out of the sky? Is there something else? This is what this story tells us. It's, it's not mostly gender. It's mostly weakness. It's mostly who's the vulnerable, the marginalized, the neglected, the left out, the last, the lost. In this era, it just happened to be women. Well, Peter's got his own stuff going on. He, when he sees it, he's, he's got his own stuff. And, and, and we don't see it so much in the gospel reading as we do in the reading from Acts. Where Peter and most of his contemporaries were very confused about election and what it meant. Um, election properly understood means that the one is chosen for the benefit of the many. But for Peter and his contemporaries, this had actually become a very deep and confused xenophobia. That is to say, knowing that if, if this is the whole world and Israel is the one thing that's picked for the sake of others, what had really happened is, okay, we think we know who we are, but we even mess that up all the time. And we're not at all sure what Samaritans and Gentiles and the others the, in the Greek New Testament, the ethne, everybody else, we're not sure who they are. And basically, we don't like them and trust them. And, and you could actually sort of define xenophobia in a dictionary way by just looking at the Jews of Jesus' day. I don't mean to say that they were bad or evil. They were just deeply confused. Wondering things like, can we eat with Gentiles? Don't Gentiles have to become Jews first? And even then, can we eat with them? They were learning these hands. This loving inclusion. The rescue of the ethne. That the one existed for the purpose of lovingly including the rest. And this is why Peter says, I just didn't know that God doesn't show favoritism. I've been taught since I was a boy we were his favorites. But now I see, post-resurrection, post these unbound hands, God is now including everybody. And I think the big formational key here for us, for our own discipleship, is that though Peter and Mary had deep knowledge of the Jewish prophets, they certainly would have completely understood what those prophets were saying. And though they heard Jesus teach about these things, the resurrection still shocked them. And it's because there's nothing about resurrection that's familiar to us. There's nothing to which we can find easy comparisons. And I want to say that the spiritual formation aspects of resurrection are the same. That when we come to follow Jesus... We are in the position of choosing to trust or not. That's the basic discipleship thing. In whose hands are you placing your confidence? And the reason Peter and these ladies are so confused, everybody around them is, is that they were being asked to place their confidence in something new, something invisible, and it's just really hard to get. It's like we kind of owe them our sympathy. We now have 2,000 years of reflection on this, and we still wonder, is there a place that I can put my confidence? Because I can't see those hands anymore, but I can see the work of my hands. I can see the strength in my body. I can see the intelligence in my brain. I know how to put confidence in that, 
but can I place my confidence in another who is invisible? Well, while we were sleeping last night, Pope Francis, in a, not out on the balcony, but in a private chapel service, was wondering something like this. He said, I, I'm, from what I read, he kind of just said this off the cuff. He wondered, why are there so many tragedies and wars if Jesus is raised from the dead? That's a question that takes some guts. Why are there so many personal tragedies and global wars if Jesus is risen from the dead? Answering his own question, he said, the church never ceases to say, faced with our defeats, faced with our closed and fearful hearts, the church never stops saying, but stop, wait a minute, the Lord is risen. But again, if the Lord is risen, how come these things keep happening? And Francis says, having faith on Easter gives us the perspective in the middle of so many calamities to just stop and let us get a different sense about ourselves, of looking beyond and of gaining the sense of saying, there isn't a wall there's a horizon. And the horizon includes the wall. And the horizon includes all of our human walls. It's just not most fundamental. Easter says, nope, shift your perspective. There is a horizon. And so the resurrection of Jesus is then the basis for a worldview that provides a new and better perspective on all of life. It allows us to not say our life isn't real. There are people in this room who are sick. There are people in this room and all over the world, Christians who are experiencing deep pain and are trapped in sin that they feel hopeless for getting out of. Well, I could stand here and go on and on and on. That's all real. It's just that Easter says, but on the horizon is this opportunity. Give yourself to him. And so this then is the Easter invitation to our own formation in Christ-likeness. It's to bring our lives into conformity with Christ. To little by little, day by day, grace by grace, take on his mind, his character, and his abilities. For this was his purpose in being made man. This was his reason for living and dying and rising. Not just that we would go to heaven when we die, of course we will. But that we might be fashioned in his image. Take my hands. Come follow me, Jesus said. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly seeing the true horizon. Amen.